Ron, I really do appreciate all the hard work. Thank you, my brother. All right, that's enough. <laughs> He's trying to take my preaching time by clapping now. <laughs> Got to watch those music guys. <laughs> well, it's Christmas time, isn't it? Yes, indeed it is. And just like every year at Christmas time, there is a must-have toy. In prior years, it was Tickle Me Elmo, or Cabbage Patch Dolls, or Beanie Babies. I bet some of you have these things, right? Absolutely. Or how about this one, Pet Rocks? You remember that one? Pet Rock. That was the greatest marketing ploy ever created. I am so jealous that we hadn't thought of that. Can you imagine? We could finance church planting by selling rocks. Ah, yes, indeed. Christmas comes and with it comes the latest toy fad, the latest got to have, right? If I do not have this toy, my Christmas just is not going to be all that it should be. There'll be no joy in Tinseltown without whatever the toy that we think we need to have. You would expect with today's economic environment that the enthusiasm for these crazy fads might dampen, but you would be wrong if you thought such things. The latest and greatest must-have toy is a Zuzu hamster. A Zuzu hamster. That's right. Maybe some of you have one, and if you do, you are a very fortunate person. You are a fortunate person. A Zuzu hamster is a robotic hamster covered in a plush fabric made in China, originally designed to retail for under $10. But because it is so wildly popular right now, it is completely sold out off all shelves. You cannot get a Zuzu hamster. They're, they come in in ration quantities. You stand in line for hours. You think I'm kidding about this. I am not kidding you. you not me. People stand in line for hours <laughs> to get a Zuzu hamster. In fact, according to what I was reading, the only way to get one now is online through the internet at four times the retail price. Yes, indeed. For $39.95, now you can have a Zuzu hamster and your Christmas will be complete. I read about one lady who wanted Zuzu hamster, a couple of them. I, I think they have different names and whatever. But anyway, one lady wanted several of them for her daughter for her birthday this fall. And they were all sold out. And so she went on the internet and she bought several of the Zuzu hamsters. And then there were accessories that go with them, of course. And by the time she was done, she had charged $453 to her credit card for Zuzu hamsters. Now you are shaking your heads at such foolishness and rightfully so. 
you are shaking your heads, and rightfully so. But if you don't want a Zuzu hamster for Christmas this year, what do you want? What is it you want for Christmas this year? What are you longing for? What consumes your passions? Where are your hours being spent? What is it that you desire above all else? What would you stand in line for in order to receive? If it's not a Zuzu hamster, what is it? What has captured your heart? I want to take you back 2,000 years. I want to take you back 2,000 years this morning to a group of individuals. A group of individuals who were on a quest. They were searching for something. Some were wealthy and powerful. Some were poor and despised. Some were old and some were young. Some were Jews and some were Gentiles. They came from all walks and aspects of life, but they were all on the same mission, the same quest, the same search. They had been captivated by something and they would not stop until they found it. What is it they were looking for? They were looking for Messiah. They were looking for Messiah. We find their stories in the Gospels. And they are given to us there to commend to us these people who in faith were pursuing this quest, looking for Messiah. The writers of the Gospels would have us emulate their lives. What can we learn from these individuals? What simple lesson This morning, can we take away from very familiar accounts for us? There are really three very simple lessons this morning. For this group of individuals who are so widely divergent in in every aspect other than the common quest, we can learn three simple lessons. First, their quest was persistent. It was a persistent quest. They would not be detoured. They would not turn to the left or the right. They had a beeline for that which they want, and they stayed on target until they found it. Their quest was persistent. Beyond that, their quest was purposeful. It was a purposeful quest. They knew what it was that they were going after. They knew who they wanted And finally, their quest was prosperous. It was prosperous because in the end, they found the one they were looking for. There is much that we can take away this morning. We live in a very frantic world. Stuff is coming at us constantly. We are being bombarded with message. We live in a world in which there is instant communication And we are overwhelmed with it as it comes upon us. It is very, very easy at this time of year to be completely sidetracked in our thinking. To lose sight of that which is truly important in life. And so what I want to do with you this morning is just take you back to these very simple stories that you are quite familiar with. 
And may the Lord God use our time together to refocus all of us on that which is truly important, looking for Messiah. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 and let the quest begin. Luke chapter 2. If you are using a pew Bible this morning, page 1020, page 1020. I'm going to begin the reading at verse 1 of chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Stop right there. We are introduced here to the first group of individuals, the shepherds. The shepherds. Now, In our day and age, we look upon shepherds, and in particular, shepherds having to do with the Christmas narrative, and we and we see them as as these wonderful characters that are so so cute, so appropriate to the Christmas scene. We've we've reduced them to statues or figurines that we would put around a crash in our home, and in doing so, we have completely missed the context of what is being communicated to us here. We need to understand shepherds in the context of the first century, not in the romantic view of shepherds that you and I have today. In the first century, the occupation of a shepherd was a lowly and not particularly desirable occupation to have. To be a shepherd was to be at the lower levels of society. It was a low-class occupation. So here are these shepherds, and Luke tells us, verse 8, that they were in the same region. That is, they were in the area around Bethlehem, and they were tending their flocks. Flocks that were probably being gathered together for temple sacrifice. So there they are, out on the hills, surrounding this small hamlet of Bethlehem, about five or six miles from Jerusalem, tending the flocks headed for the sacrifice of the temple. Because sheep are vulnerable, at night the shepherds would gather their flocks together. Various flocks would be brought together and they would be housed in in a sheepfold. Sheepfold would be constructed typically of either piled rocks It would create this horseshoe-like enclosure. Or, if possible, they would back it up against the mountain and they would use 
cuttings from, from thorn bushes and they would create a fence using those. Whatever they could do to pen the sheep in so that there was only one way in and one way out and the shepherds would then camp outside the gate, keeping watch over their flocks by night. As you might imagine, on this first Christmas night, the shepherds are huddled close together. There's undoubtedly a fire to keep them warm. And they're undoubtedly talking with one another about the, the, what, the events of the day, just trying to keep each other awake as they watch over these flocks by night. When suddenly, it's as if a door in heaven opens wide and light comes pouring through the doorway. And, and there, silhouetted against the light, is an angel of God. And he begins to speak to them. Look in verse 9. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. You bet they were. The doorway into heaven doesn't open very often. And when it does, and the angel steps forth, you fall on your face. And I'm sure that that's what these men did. The angel said to them, verse 10, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. In response to this amazing visitation from the other world, from the angelic realm, Luke tells us that the shepherds respond by continually saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing. Verse 15. The verb saying there indicates to us in the Greek that this is, this is a repeated conversation that's going on among them. In fact, it's, again, not too difficult to understand what it would be they would be talking about. Let's go see what's happening. And someone says, well, what about the sheep? What are we going to do with the sheep? Well, you stay behind. I don't want to stay behind. I stayed behind last time, right? So there's this ongoing conversation. That's what's being indicated to us that they are having a discussion about how it is they are going to go and see that which the angel has announced to them. Beyond that, verse 16 indicates to us that they came in haste and found their way to Mary. Again, the Greek indicates to us that there was searching going on. They arrive in the area of Bethlehem and they begin to search until they find this one that matches the description given by the angel. They are persistent in this quest. Persistent. They will not be turned aside until they find the one whom they've been told by the angel. Next, we note that their quest is purposeful. By that, I mean they know who they are looking for. 
The angel has told them that in Bethlehem there has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 11, do you see it? There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news of great joy, verse 10. The good news of great joy is that God has become man. Not that we can reach up to him, but that he has reached down to us. That which we could never do, the, the, the gulf between man and God that could never be bridged by us, God has in turn bridged for us by reaching down to us. God became a man. And so they hasten off. They hasten off to find this one, the promised one, the one spoken to them about by the angel. Beloved, the reality that God has become man is a truth that is so profound, so radical, so amazing, and it lies at the very heart of what we call the Christian gospel. You and I, trapped in our sin, unable to do that which is pleasing to God, even in our best moments, our best thoughts and deeds and words defiled by the sin in which that inhabits us. No way to ever reach to God and God rather than leave us in in our misery, rather than judge us as we deserve, has instead extended His mercy and grace to us in the person of His own Son. God stepped into space and time. God took to Himself human flesh. Perfect humanity, undiminished deity together in the God-man that he might come and what? Die for you and me. Beloved, every, every crash, every manger scene ought to have a shadow of a cross that falls across the cradle. For this one came for one purpose and one purpose only. He came to die that he might save his people from their sins. Their quest was purposeful. They were looking for a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord, God, who has come to live among us. Beyond that, their quest was prosperous. Their quest was prosperous, beginning verse 17. And when they had seen this, seen what? When they had seen the child in fulfillment of what the angels had told them would be there, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. The search was over. The quest was done. They had found the one, the promised one, the one who had been told them had come. They looked, they searched, they found, and they went away rejoicing. In fact, what it says is they were so overjoyed by what it is they had seen and had been told them that they could not keep their mouths shut. They told Mary, they told Joseph, and they told everybody else. And again, you have to use a little sanctified imagination. But here are these shepherds going around saying, you won't believe what we heard and what we saw. And they begin to tell them, God has come down to us. God has become a man. God has come to save us from our sins. When you know that kind of truth, that's not something you keep to yourself. 
That's not a message you bottle up. That's a message that you proclaim from one end to the other. Their quest was prosperous. They had found the long-expected one. They had seen the Christ, the Messiah. Their own eyes had seen their Savior. Next, we're introduced to another group of searchers, another group of seekers. Right here in the same chapter, we're introduced to a man by the name of Simeon. A man by the name of Simeon, and then a little bit later in this section, we are introduced to a group of temple worshipers. Temple worshipers. They too are on a quest. Their quest was different than that of the shepherds. The shepherds have been informed by the angels and they immediately set out upon that quest. Simeon and the temple worshipers had a different story, but it was the same basic storyline. Their quest was persistent as well. Follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 21, when the eight days were completed before his circumcision, that is Christ, the child, his name was then called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves are two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you may let your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For in my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother, that is, Jesus' father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even to your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke introduces us here to Simeon and a group of unidentified temple worshipers. We don't know anything about Simeon outside of what is given to us in this text here. We do not know his age. We do not know his occupation. Luke does not tell us whether he was a priest or a religious leader or whether he was just a common citizen. We have no idea. 
All we know about this man is that he is identified, verse 25, as a righteous and devout man, a righteous and devout man involved in a persistent quest. A persistent quest. Look again, verse 25. He is a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation of Israel. Looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking, the the idea here is that he was looking in an expectant way. He was not just sitting back and saying, well, maybe it'll come, maybe it won't come. He was a man that was looking forward in a very active and expectant kind of way. He was persistent in his looking for the consolation of Israel. Beyond that, we're introduced down in verse 38 to this group of temple worshipers who are also spoken of in the end of the verse. You see them? They are looking for the redemption of Israel. Same verb used there. They are looking in an expectant fashion for the redemption of Israel. So we have Simeon and we have a group of temple worshipers. Both of them, their lives are committed to a certain quest, a certain task. They're looking for a certain one. It consumes their thinking. It focuses their attention. Every day of their lives, they are after and waiting expectantly for this coming one. They are persistent in their look. Now, conditions in Israel were bad at this time. They were bad. Rome had the nation under its iron fist. The cruel local ruler was Herod, who was murderous in his hatred and brutal in the way he carried it out. Their religion had become externalized. The scribes and the Pharisees were legalistic. The Sadducees were worldly-minded. All around them in their society was corrupt and depraved. And yet there were these righteous and devout ones expectantly looking for the coming, the coming one. Even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the despair, there were still men and women that were earnestly and persistently looking forward to Messiah. We see the fact that in their purposeful quest, look at verse 25 again, they are looking expectantly. And then we see this phrase for the consolation of Israel. Do you see that? Verse 25. The consolation of Israel. That phrase is so loaded with meaning. So loaded with meaning. The consolation of Israel. That expression refers to a time when, according to the prophets, God would deliver the nation of Israel. In fact, it's a reference, and I'll turn you there, back to Isaiah chapter 40, page 721, if you're using a pew Bible. The consolation of Israel is a direct reference back to Isaiah chapter 40 and beginning in verse 1. Isaiah writes at a time when the nation is facing judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians sweep them away, the times of the Gentiles will come and the nation of Israel will remain under the iron boot of Gentile overlords. And but the prophet gives them hope and says there will be a day to come. There is a future time coming when Messiah will deliver you as a nation. 
And so the prophet speaks of it here in chapter 40, beginning in verse 1, where he says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. By the way, the root behind this word comfort is the same root behind the word to console. And in fact, it is the same root behind the Greek word for Holy Spirit, the comforter or the consoler. They are looking for the time and day or the age of the Spirit of God when he will come and comfort and console the nation. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The gospel writers quote this passage in Isaiah speaking of the coming Messiah. It is repeatedly quoted in the Gospels. Make smooth the path before Messiah, the coming one. Lift up the valleys, smooth out the hills, make the rough ground a a flat and broad way that Messiah may come in and deliver his people comfort, oh, comfort the nation. This text in Isaiah is proof, according to the Gospel writers, that Jesus is that coming One, the consolation of Israel is a time when the nation is looking forward to the coming of Messiah, looking for the coming of Messiah. Beyond that, the statement back here again, turn to Luke, the statement back in Luke 2 at the end in verse 38 is a similar kind of statement. Looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. A reference to Isaiah chapter 52 and in verse 9, another prophecy about Messiah. These temple dwellers, if I can say it this way, Simeon and those unknown temple worshipers were so intimately familiar with their scriptures, they knew exactly who it was they were looking for. And so in a very expectant, a very persistent, a very constant way, they were looking for the coming deliverer. The coming deliverer. And their quest was prosperous. Their quest was prosperous. Back again to Luke chapter 2. And he, that is Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and he blessed God and he said, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation, God. My quest is finished. I have seen the one. I have given myself to looking for this one. I have been purposely and persistently looking for the deliverer, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. I have seen. I have seen your salvation. Verse 30. Anna comes up at apparently at that same time while Simeon, Simeon is, is making this prophecy, this statement, and And in verse 38, she comes up at that very moment. Do you see it? And she begins giving thanks to God. Apparently, she must overhear what Simeon has to say. And she enters in and gives thanks as well. And we know that this woman has been been looking for 84 years, it tells us. She enters into it 
and, and then continues the end of the verse to speak of this Christ to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. They too now have purposefully ended their quest. They have found that which they are looking for. Prosperity has come to them. It has come to them. They are persistent. They are purposeful. And they are prosperous. They find what it is they're looking for. There's one more group of seekers the Scriptures tell us about. One more group this morning that God would have us emulate. For them, you have to turn back to to the left to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, page 957. Page 957, and we arrive at the third group of seekers this morning. Matthew chapter 2. Now, the events in this chapter happen probably a minimum of several months to perhaps as long as a year, maybe even a little more, after the birth of Messiah. So these are later events. Sorry to all you who have your magi sitting right in the manger scene. I know it fits better on the shelf that way. But to be more appropriate, you should have your magi in the the next bedroom. Okay? And all of this year, 2010, you can inch them forward. Right? Then next year, about this time, you can have them there and you can celebrate. That's how it works. So there is a considerable amount of time that has passed between the events narrated by Luke and the events narrated by Matthew. We know that, by the way. Look down in verse 11. Just a little background here. Down in verse 11, you notice that they're in a house. They came into the house and they saw the child. According to Luke, they find the child where? In a manger. So he's no longer in the manger. He's no longer in a feed trough. He is now in a house. So some time has passed for that. Beyond that, according to to Luke's gospel, and we just read it here in chapter 2, after Mary brought the child into the temple to be circumcised, she gave the appropriate gifts that were required under the Levitical law. And she gave the gift of, of pigeons and turtle doves, which were the gifts of those in poverty. They were the gifts of the poor. Those who had means were required to give a more substantial gift, but the very poorest people gave turtle doves and pigeons. And so the fact that Mary offered the sacrifice, the minimal sacrifice of the poor, inclines us to believe that the gifts that were given by the Magi probably hadn't come yet. Otherwise, Joseph, being a righteous man, would surely have given a greater gift than that of one who was poor. Beyond that, over in verse 16, you'll notice when Herod figures out that the the wool has been pulled over his eyes, that he has been tricked. In a rage, he, he gives an order to slaughter the infants in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, and he gives the order to kill all from two years old and under according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. And so, again, it indicates to us that the child was now older, therefore Herod set the, the upper limit at two years old in order to make sure that he would kill this threat to his throne. And so some period of time has undoubtedly passed since the birth of the child and the arrival of these seekers. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. You notice the little marker there in verse 1, Behold. That one should catch your eye. That could easily be translated, Pay attention. Don't let your mind drift here. Something stupendous is about to be communicated to you. Do not miss it. Well, what is being communicated to you? Behold, pay attention, don't miss it. Magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem searching for the king of the Jews. That ought to cause you to sit up and take notice. That ought to cause you to sit up and take notice. Who are these magi? Who are the Magi? Why would it disrupt the city of Jerusalem? In fact, we see that down in verse 3. When Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You bet. You bet the city was troubled. Herod's troubled because there are people going around his city looking to see where is the king. Now, wait a minute. I'm king of the Jews. You don't get it. I'm king of the Jews, not anyone else. And if there's anyone here that's that's seeking after my throne, we're going to have a problem. And in fact, if I... if if I've got a problem, you've all got a problem. So the whole city is in turmoil over these magi. Who are they? Who are the magi? The magi were Persian kingmakers. Persian kingmakers. They were a priestly caste that came from the east. Sometimes they're translated as wise men, and that's a, a fair translation as well. Wise men. They were a, a priestly caste of kingmakers that would come from the area in the east, probably somewhere around Iran. And their purpose was to coronate a king. You could not be a Middle Eastern king without having this anointing from the priestly caste. And so they were necessary in order for one to be proclaimed legitimately a king. They are traveling a long distance and it's most likely that there were not just three of them on camels bouncing their way across the desert, carrying with them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That is not a, a good way for people to travel. There were lots of bandits in those days. So it is very unlikely that these powerful and wealthy men would have traveled in a small group of three. It is far more likely they would have come with a whole retinue of bodyguards and attendants. It is far more likely that they came into the city on horses, Persian cavalry surrounding them. And when they rode into Herod's city saying, where is the king of the Jews? Now you know why Herod's upset. Now you know why he's upset. These people have arrived. They are involved in a persistent quest. A persistent quest. How do I know that? I know it from the end of verse 1. They arrive in Jerusalem saying, again, the Greek indicates to us there is a persistence to this. They are going everywhere in the city of Jerusalem. Where is the king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Hey, you, come over here. Yeah, you. Where is he that was born king of the Jews? It's that kind of an idea. Every resident of the city is being questioned where is he who was born king of the Jews? In fact, it gets to be so persistent that finally, verse 3, King Herod hears about it. He hears about it. So there is a, a persistence in their quest. A 
persistence in their quest. Beyond that, there is a purpose to their quest. These magi have left their home in Persia and they have traveled a thousand miles. A thousand miles. In those days, you didn't travel straight across the desert. That's suicide. You would travel north along the river route and then back down what would be the king's highway. And so it would be traveling two sides of a triangle rather than straight across. They've traveled probably close to a thousand miles on this lengthy journey, this purposeful journey. A journey that was started according to them in verse 2, that they have seen his star in the east. Do you see it? And we have come to worship him. What is the purpose of the quest? It is to come and find the king of him who was born, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, so that we might worship him. And we have seen his star in the east. Now, just reminding you a little bit about geography. Jerusalem lies to the west of Persia. It lies to the west of Persia. So to see his star in the east says that when the Magi first saw it, it wasn't that the star resided over Jerusalem. It was that the star was to the east of them. To the east of them. So it could not be the star that led them initially to Jerusalem. Something else drove them in this direction. Something caused these persistent seekers to become purposeful in leaving their capital city and traveling this lengthy thousand-mile journey in order to seek out him who was born king of the Jews. What drove them? Well, historians tell us that in those days there was a general expectation among the ancient peoples of the world that a deliverer would come. It was just kind of a common knowledge, a common understanding that flowed throughout the world. The Roman historian Suetonius, writing early in the second century and speaking about the time of the birth of Christ, wrote the following, I quote, There had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tacitus, another Roman historian, writing in about the same time and writing of the same period of time, wrote, quote, There was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire, close quote. What caused these Persian kingmakers to come to Jerusalem? What was it? that stimulated them to know that this is where they must go. Well, we cannot prove it, to be sure. But 500 years before, the Jewish prophet Daniel, you remember him? Was carried off to Babylon. And in the providence of God, he was elevated to a place of position and authority over who? Over the wise men. Over the wise men of Babylon. When Babylon fell and was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, the wise men of Babylon and Medo-Persia were pulled together into this sect of wise men. So in my opinion, it is very likely that they were instructed in the prophecies of Daniel. They were influenced by the prophecies of Daniel. I mean, certainly Daniel's prophecies had come true. Do you remember Daniel chapter 2 and the statue? The empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. Do you remember those? 
Well, by this time, Babylon has fallen, Medo-Persia has fallen, Greece has fallen, and Rome is in ascendancy. Beyond that, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 speaks of Daniel's 70th week. And again, there was a way to pin down a time for the coming of this one. Why was there a persistent rumor in the world in those days that a deliverer was going to arise in Judea, a backwater part of the Roman Empire, and he was to have a universal kingdom? It's because God had revealed it through the prophet Daniel. Where would you look for the king of the Jews? The only logical place to look for the king of the Jews in the capital city, Jerusalem. That's why they arrive in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, what about this star? We just need to talk about that for a second. What about this whole star thing? Well, let's just boil it down to this. It was not a real physical star in the sense that you and I see up in the night sky. I am persuaded to the depth of my being someday. I will come back to this passage and I'll make my case for you, but I am totally persuaded that what they saw was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, the bright and shining brilliance of God. That's what they saw, and that's what initiated their quest and search of the ancient manuscripts and the prophecies of Daniel, which then stimulated their purposeful quest for Messiah. By the way, I don't see any way that a physical star could come and stand over the house where the child was. But I certainly understand the glory of God hovering over the house just as it hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness many, many centuries before. Purposefully searching. Finally, beloved, their quest was prosperous, wasn't it? Down to verse 9. Having heard the king, they went on their way, and lo, pay attention, behold, same thing. The star which had been seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They're stunned, it indicates to us, verse 9. They are stunned. The star reappears. It leads them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to the exact house where the child is. And they find the one they've been searching for. And they fall down at him. They pour out their treasures, treasures fit only for a king. And they worship him. Ancient prophet, Jewish prophet Isaiah has spoken years before in Isaiah chapter 42 and in verse 6 that the Messiah would be a light to the nations. A light to the nations in fulfillment of the promise of long ago to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. These Persian kingmakers, these magi, they are the down payment of the Gentile world coming to fall at the feet of Messiah. We've seen different circumstances in three separate groups of individuals, haven't we? We've seen the lowly and despised shepherds. We've seen the religiously devout and righteous temple worshipers. And we have seen the wealthy and powerful Gentile kingmakers. Different circumstances of life. 
but have all been involved in the same quest. They are looking for Messiah. What are you looking for this Christmas? What are you looking for this Christmas? What do you want? What would fulfill you this Christmas time? Where is your hope? Where is your joy? Can you enter into their quest? Or in the hustle and bustle of it all, have you been pulled off to the side? That's what we do with these simple and familiar narratives. We pause long enough to let the Spirit cause His Word to penetrate into our own hearts and to search them and to say, where am I? Will I be counted among the faithful? Could my story be added to theirs? Am I persistent? Am I purposeful? Have I been prosperous in my quest? Maybe you know Messiah. Maybe you have found Messiah. But what has happened is that in the difficulties of life, you have been pulled off track. Your love and passion have grown cool. You can't honestly say, when I look at myself, when I evaluate the year 2009, that I have been on a quest for Messiah, that I have been purposely and persistently seeking after Him. No, actually, when I evaluate myself, I've been here and I've been there and I've been everywhere. If this speaks of your case this morning, there is a solution for you. It's a very simple solution. The simple solution is to begin again those first things. Make an early morning appointment with God. Set your alarm clock and get out of bed. Open up your Bible and begin to return to your first love. Begin again to let the Spirit of God wash over you from His Word to refine your quest that your life could, could be characterized by one who is persistently seeking after Messiah, one who knows what is important in life and is pursuing after that, one who finds Him on a regular basis. Maybe the dismal economic news coming out of Washington has you all in a turmoil. It's bad, for sure. Certainly as bad as it has been in several decades, maybe longer. Has that turned your life upside down? Have you lost your focus? Have you forgotten who it is that you are really pursuing? Beloved, the the first coming of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of His second The angels said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Do you believe that? Does your life reflect that reality? Is he the king of kings and Lord of lords? He is. 
Does our life reflect that reality? Yes, this world is messed up. Guess what? It's always been messed up and it always will be. Keep your eye on the ball. Look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. And maybe for some, you have not yet entered onto the quest to find Messiah. Maybe your life is characterized by searching for many different things, but it's not been for Messiah. You have bounced from one thing to another, perhaps from one relationship to another, looking for some kind of fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Maybe you've moved from one job to another, bouncing around looking for that which will satisfy. There are many different cheap substitutes that people try to bring in to fill the hole in their heart. It's like Zuzu hamsters. It's just not going to make it. And next year there will be some other cheap trinket imitation. And you will go another year unfulfilled, unsatisfied, not understanding what life is all about. It's not until you begin on the true search for meaning in life, a search that will lead you to Messiah. It is Jesus alone. It is Jesus alone that can save you from your sin. It is Jesus alone that can fill the hole in your heart. It is Jesus alone that can reconcile your relationship with your Creator and your relationship with others. It is in Christ and Christ alone that life makes any sense at all. Your journey can begin right now, right here. As I pray, everyone bows their heads. You call out to Christ. You call out to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I have made a mess of my life. I have, I have made a hash of it all. I have gone here and I have gone there. I have tried this and I have tried that. And everything is a disaster. Nothing fulfills. Nothing satisfies. Nothing can relieve the pain and anguish of my soul. I believe you have died on a cross in my place. You have risen from the dead on the third day, demonstrating and proving to all with eyes of faith to see that God the Father has accepted your sacrifice. Lord Jesus, save me from my sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the Scripture says that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I pray right now in this place that you would move in the hearts of those who do not know Messiah, who have not yet entered upon this lifetime quest. Oh, Lord, please grant mercy and grace. Open their eyes to see the truth. Fill their hearts with faith and longing for Christ. Have them cry out to Him and our Father, may You save them. And for those, our Father, whom You have saved, and yet, Lord, in the hustle and bustle of life, in the turmoil of, of this world in which we live, we confess our sin and that we have forgotten our first love. We have allowed other things to come in and crowd it out. Problems and trials and travails. Success and material acquisitions. Relationships and friendships. 
parenting responsibilities, school, work. So many things our Father are constantly bombarding us and seeking to crowd out and obscure our vision of Christ. Oh, Lord God, let us return again to first things. Let our heart in simplistic faith, even now, begin again to do those things that would inflame our passions for Jesus Christ. Let us return to the path and the journey that will ultimately conclude when Christ returns to take us home. It's in his name we pray. Amen.